Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Our lines are open for you. For The Naked Scientist, what do you want to ask Chris? You can send us an SMS. You can ask your questions on Twitter. But our lines remain open. 021-446-0567-011-8830702. Nice to talk to you again, Chris, in this new year. Welcome. Hey, good morning. Good morning. And same to you. Thank you so very much. Uh, new antibiotics discovered in the soil. What's that about? lovely story because of course one of the really big things the trends that have dominated the news for many years now in fact ever since penicillin was first invented really is that microbes are becoming increasingly resistant to the antibiotics we have to treat them with we're always therefore looking for better antibiotics and new antibiotics one of the big problems though is that we've run out of ideas and the reason we've run out of ideas is that most of our antibiotic drugs are informed by or come from bugs that live in the soil. And we make the antibiotics by growing the bugs from the soil and we steal the antibiotic chemicals that they make to fend off the attack from other bacteria. Now, the fact is that in the soil there are many, many other bacteria and microbes that we can't grow in our laboratory in this way. In fact, we think only about 1% of the bugs in the soil can be grown. And therefore, we might be missing a trick and missing 99% of the potential antibiotics that are living in the soil if we could make these bugs grow. Now, Kim Lewis is a microbiologist and bacteriologist at Northeastern University in America, and he has cracked this nut and discovered a way of making these previously unculturable bacteria grow. The way he does it is you take a soil sample, you dilute it down to get almost individual bacteria, mm-hmm. you then mix them up with a colchum substance, and you put them in a membrane, a thin layer, which has tiny holes in it, just big enough for molecules and other substances to go in and out, but not big enough for microorganisms to go in and out, and you then put that temporarily back in the soil and in this way you fool the bacteria into thinking they're still in the soil so they can presumably come into contact with various growth factors chemicals made by other microorganisms in the soil that they obviously rely on to grow and eventually they start a little colony and once they've got a little colony going then he's found you can put them in a culture dish in the laboratory and then they'll grow and from there you can then begin to explore what sort of chemicals they're capable of making and using this technique he's immediately discovered another 25 promising antibiotics and one of them called hexabactin is extremely powerful against multi-drug resistant gram-positive bacteria which cause severe infections we're talking MRSA and also things like streptococcus pneumoniae, which causes bad lung infections and meningitis. In mice that were experimentally infected with potentially lethal infections with these bugs, they were cured with this new antibiotic. Mm. So it's very promising indeed. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, sounds exciting. Uh, the one story that uh, uh, caused a lot of interest, and I saw it extensively covered on Sky and BBC, was about cancer and that bad luck could explain about two-thirds of cancers exceeding the risk of uh, risk conferred by environmental and genetic factors. I find that hard to believe, uh, uh, Chris. I don't know what you know about that. 
Well, you and half the population, because, um, in fact, it made headlines on a network radio programme in Britain with people saying, well, actually, can we drill into the facts behind this? Because we don't understand how you've arrived at that. And, uh, in fact, the, the programme got in touch with the authors of that paper. It was published in Science, so a bunch in America. And, and in fact, they, they've now said they're going to publish another paper to explain how they arrive at their conclusion in their first paper. But it's not straightforward, actually, how they arrive at this. And it's, it's a sort mm -hmm. of, it's a statistical interpretation, actually. But what they're saying is that, basically, uh, certain cancers in certain parts of the body are, an, are, are rare in the majority of the population. But given how many cells there are in the body, given how many genes that can change to make cancer and that you only need one of those genes in the right place, right time to change and, and how many rolls of the dice there are, in many cases, it's actually down to a bad luck chance. Mm. All right, let's go to the lines then. Ralph in Somerset West, you've got a question for the Naked Scientist. Go ahead. Morning, ready. Morning, Chris. Mm. I've got a question. My daughter is nine years old. She suffers from ADHD. And obviously, she's, she's very active when it comes to sport, running, etc. Now, she keeps on pushing the limit. She wants to run faster. She wants to run uphill. She wants to run upstairs. Is that normal? Is it okay for me to push her at that age? Because, frankly, at the moment, she's pushing more me than I'm pushing her. <laughs> now, that's what many parents yeah. say, Ralph. Welcome, welcome to the club. Um, the bottom line is that uh, children with ADHD tend to have a lot of energy. They behave in quite an impulsive way and they find it very hard to focus on one thing and stay focused on one thing because their attention is being dragged all over the place. Now, there's no evidence, though, though that being physically active and burning off some of this energy isn't a good thing because what it does do, if you are physically active and you pursue a sport, for example, or you go for a run or you take part in, a, in an organised game, is that you are learning and becoming better at controlling the impulsivity and focusing on one thing and sticking with it because this is what um, children and adults with ADHD often find difficult. It's actually seeing something through to completion. They'll, they'll start something and then they get distracted or find it very hard to concentrate for very long on that one thing, and then they're off doing something else. So actually doing something for a sustained period of time which, in which that person has an interest is a good thing. So if your daughter's really into sport, that's something worth nurturing because she, she, if she has got boundless energy, and, and this is something she does find easy to apply herself to, then this may help her to actually apply herself better in other circumstances because she'll learn to take the learning from how she applies herself in sport and apply it in everyday life. So there you have it, Ralph. Keep enjoying it. And I don't know if you'll be able to keep up, but good luck, eh? <laughs> Thank you. Good luck. Pam in Durbanville, hi. Hi. Good morning to you. Um, I've got, many years ago, when I was a small child, my, gar my uncle, who was an amazing gardener, said to me, don't eat the centre stem of lettuces. It contains laudanum. And I never have eaten the centre stem of uh, lettuces. And then a short time ago, I was read in some book that they, uh, they were uh, preparing a sleeping draft using lettuces. And I wondered if he was right. Lettuce, okay. Hi, Pam. I've not come across the idea that lettuces are a substitute for the opium poppy, laudanum being the chemical... Um, well, it's, it's actually the preparation that was made from poppies and you scrape the outer skin of a, of a poppy pod and the juice that oozes out contains morphine, opiates, and it also contains other things like papaverin, which is a smooth muscle relaxant drug, and that's why you have this intoxicating effect of morphine. Usually people would mix it in with a small amount of alcohol. Um, I'm not aware of lettuces making that substance, 
Perhaps the idea comes from the fact that when you chop the stem of a lettuce, it oozes a milky sap. Now, I'm not sure what else lettuces make. I don't think they make laudanum-like chemicals, because mm -hmm. otherwise um, people would probably be growing a lot more lettuces than they do, put it that way. Um, but I wonder if it's because the sap that oozes out of a cut poppy is also a white, juicy material, a bit like what you get from the, the uh, core of a lettuce. I haven't seen any intoxicated rabbits, I haven't seen many intoxicated vegetarians, and for that reason I'm dubious that there's much laudanum in a lettuce. Let's go to Calvin in Kensington. Interesting one. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Uh, I'm not sure, Chris, if you're aware of a story in Mozambique where people consumed a home-brewed uh, uh, mixture that was mixed with the crocodile bile. I just want to know what makes uh, uh, crocodile bile or gall so toxic. I, I don't know about the story. I presume the people came off worst, did they? Is that what the outcome was when they drank <laughs> this mixture? Well, doctors, um, uh, you know, uh, believe that um, uh, the people mixed that um, home-brewed alcohol with um, crocodile bile to make, to make the um, alcohol more potent. What was the effect on the people? Are they still alive? Did they live well, to tell the tale? Well, about 60, 60 died. Oh, okay. Yeah. Ooh, I, that I story, suspect yeah. that um, probably, rather than it being a consequence of the crocodile bile being particularly bad for them, the key is in the word homebrew. Because when you make alcohol, i.e. you ferment material, usually sugars, using yeasts, and you make a, a low concentration alcoholic beverage, when you distill it, what you're doing is heating it to a certain temperature at which the alcohol boils off more readily than the water, and this enriches the concentration of the alcohol. If you're not careful, and you don't do this very, very carefully with very, very careful control of the temperature, you don't just boil over the ethanol, which is alcohol that we want to drink, uh, because that's the stuff that's, that's relatively safely intoxicating. You can also boil over methanol, because... Any alcoholic beverage makes a little bit of methanol as well. And methanol is chemically the same as ethanol, minus one carbon and three hydrogen atoms. And for this reason, you end up with more methanol in the beverage than you should have. The best brandy on the shelf has probably got a few percent methanol in it at, at worst. It's perfectly reasonable for home brews for that number to climb into you know tens of percent. And when you eat or drink material that contains methanol in it, in your liver, you have an enzyme that breaks down ethanol, safe alcohol. But because it prefers breaking down the ethanol, it spends a lot of time doing that. And then when it runs out of ethanol to break down, it can then start breaking down methanol. When it breaks down methanol, it turns it into formic acid and then... Uh, it turns it into um, formaldehyde, which is the chemical used to embalm bodies. And this is very, very toxic to your brain. And usually people who Im imbibe this stuff end up, uh, the first symptom is of a very, very bad hangover symptom. And then sometimes they complain of sight loss because it damages the parts of the brain which you see with. And then other metabolic problems and liver damage kick in and then often these people die. And that's because you're quite literally embalming your body from within. The treatment, though, is that you give a big, hefty dose of ethanol, so you actually make people who've, who've drunk methanol by accident very drunk. Why do you do that? Because the answer is that the enzyme in your liver that normally breaks down the methanol into this toxic uh, formaldehyde substance, the fixative, 
it much prefers eating ethanol. So if you distract it with a big dose of ethanol, then your and a load of water as well, then the kidneys wash away the methanol and you just lose it without metabolizing it, and then you don't get the nasty formic, ac uh, formic acid and formaldehyde being made as a, as a byproduct of the enzyme. You just get a bad hangover. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it, but I don't think it's so much to do with crocodile bile as mm. probably wood alcohol or methanol that got into the home beverage. Dima in Dibkiof, hi. Hi, Rudy Hunter and Dr. Chris. Mm -hmm. I'd just like to know why the mammals in the animal kingdom don't bleed to death after giving birth as a result of their umbilical cord not being cut. That is a fantastic question. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we don't know the answer, but it comes down to incredible uh, physiological adaptation. And the answer is that the uterus of a pregnant woman becomes probably by weight and bulk one of the most powerful muscles, if not the most powerful muscle, in her body. And it has this incredible ability to go from a very big size, i.e. baby size, to, con to contract down to fist size as soon as a baby is out, literally in minutes. And the contraction of the uterus when a baby comes out, which is driven by a whole process of both nervous, hormonal and chemical control within the muscle and around the body, when the baby comes out and the uterus contracts very hard in this way, it expels the placenta, which is where the umbilical cord attached to the wall of the uterus, the womb, and as it contracts, it squeezes on the blood vessels which run through the uterine lining. They're called spiral arteries. And the arteries themselves also constrict very hard as soon as the baby comes out and close off. And this immediately stops the bleeding. One of the other things that happens is that you'll notice that when a baby comes, in, comes out, the first reflex is to try to breastfeed the baby uh, or, or suckle the baby. And all animals do this. And what scientists have found is that when you put a baby on the breast that triggers the release in the brain of a chemical called oxytocin. This hormone, which comes from your pituitary gland, goes around in your bloodstream. One of the places it visits is the breast, where it triggers the release of milk to the newborn baby. But the other thing that oxytocin does is it goes in the bloodstream to the uterus and other places, and it makes the... Uh, muscles can constrict very hard. So this so-called neuroendocrine reflex also triggers the placenta, uh, the, the site where the placenta was attached, to not bleed. So it helps you to achieve your, your own blood stasis. There is a little bit of blood loss, but not much. And because there is a little bit of blood loss, that's why some animals, including some humans actually, will eat the placenta after the baby is born. And they do that because the placenta is full of blood. It's therefore a rich source of iron in just the right chemical form for you to reabsorb and turn back into your own blood cells and your own haemoglobin and therefore make up the shortage that um, pregnancy may have unleashed on you. Thanks, Dima. That was a fantastic question. There's an SMS here that says, will there come a time when we can't run the 100 metres any faster? Well... If you ask people that, they'll keep saying, no, I think we've broken all the records, no, I think we've broken all the records, and every year people get a little tiny bit faster. Um, they're, they're, the, the, the incremental gains are becoming smaller and smaller, but at the same time people are becoming a bit fitter, 
shoes are becoming better, equipment's becoming better, training's becoming better, tracks are becoming better. And when I say better, they're, they're able to bring out the natural ability and performance of the athlete better than existing equipment. And for those reasons, we'll probably, uh, as long as people stay within the rules of the game, we're probably going to continue to see very, very narrow incremental increases. But certainly the dramatic increases we've seen in the past probably won't be repeated unless we breed a super race uh, of people who have longer legs, better, better tendons, that are mm. more springy, more efficient muscles and so on. But certainly, as we learn more about how humans work and our physiology and the way our muscles work, and we give more people a chance, because at the end of the day, being able to participate in sport is probably the biggest barrier to being good at sport because there are probably, with the millions and millions of potential sports people around the world, there are probably millions of elite athletes in there, but most of them don't get the chance to ever show how good they are at sport. And as the world becomes uh, richer with more people having more access more of the time to doing more things, we're probably going to select out more people who are good and therefore we'll see an improvement from that perspective as well. Is it in Tabi Singh in Auckland Park? Good morning. Morning. Um, I'd like to know. I initially had like a photographic memory um, when I was younger. I used to take pictures of diagrams and things for my exams and never had to study them. I just close my eyes and see the whole thing. Um, I, I use my memory like that. Um, I felt pregnant twice and I can't do that anymore. I don't have that good memory. After the babies, you say. <laughs> After my first pregnancy, it wasn't as bad because I would record conversations with people and I could just recall it verbatim. Yeah, not now, anymore. It, not anymore. After my second pregnancy, um, it was even worse. My so, Chris, is there any truth to pregnancy brain? Because I used to use that as a reason every time I forgot something. Is there such a thing? Yeah, I wrote a chapter in a book I wrote once called, you know, Is There Such a Thing as Baby Brain? It was a book all about debunking myths. Because people have looked at this. Because if, if you look at um, people getting pregnant and then ask them how they're doing, they all say, oh, I can't, I can't remember where I've put my car keys, I've lost my wallet, uh, I, I went shopping to buy something, came home with three other things. And everyone assumes that uh, there's some kind of mental erosion process going on before, during and after pregnancy. Actually, there's not really any good evidence that, that uh, this happens. Having said that, if you think about what there really is evidence for, uh, very demanding lifestyle, very busy lifestyle, probably a lot of disturbed sleep, probably quite a few more late nights, um, probably a lot of, of other people to think about because you can't just think about yourself anymore. You have to think about mm. the children. You've got to think about how you're going to get the children to school. Uh, have they done their homework? Have they got their musical instruments to take with them? Have they done their music practice? Have they studied for their exams? Have, have they got their PE kit? And you spend 99% of your time worrying about all those things. And that's time that you would previously have put into, even if it was subconsciously, thinking about things that are important to you. And so if you put all that together, the poor sleep, the poor attention, the, the concentration being disrupted all the time, the less time for you phenomena, then you're going to see obviously a decrement in your ability to think for yourself. There probably is a small effect because of ageing superimposed on there, but that's not really going to be a major impact mm -hmm. until you're quite a bit older. He says, with it being his birthday today, it's my birthday today. Oh! Um, <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, so I haven't had your card yet, Reedy. That was a little kind of prod. I'm just wondering whether it's coming later. Um, but no, I think that's probably the, the reason. <laughs> oh, Chris. Let's go to Neil. Neil in Bryanston. Hi. Hi, Chris. Happy birthday. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, thank you um, very much, Neil. It's nice to know I've got some <laughs> friends. <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> Chris, I've got a question about the magnetic properties of glass. I'm thinking back to when I was in primary school and we used to play marbles, and I'm sure that there was one guy that was cheating that had something <laughs> hidden in a mound of sand that used to repel the marbles away, and I can't for the life of me figure out what it was. Well, glass isn't actually magnetic. Had he somehow managed to put little particles of something that was magnetic inside his glass marbles then uh, and managed to orientate them all in the same direction? Because, of course, a marble is a ball, and therefore it's very hard to actually make it have um, a north and south in one direction when it's rolling along. It's quite quite tricky isn't it but you you could try and organize your particles in such a way that you could get a, a marble that was a bit like the earth with a magnet inside it um i'd be very skeptical if uh, he's managing to conceal something in a pile of sand because you would have to have a really really very powerful magnet hidden somewhere because the magnetic field decays as a, an inverse square law in other words if you double the distance from uh, the magnet to an object then actually the intensity of the field is about a quarter and if you double the distance again then it's going to go down by half as much again so in, it's an inverse square and therefore very quickly the intensity of the magnetic field is going to fall off with distance from the source which means you'd have to have something really extraordinarily powerful if you could repel a marble from uh, something like that. So I suspect they're probably doing something else iffy. Um, maybe mm -hmm. they were playing on a hill or something that you couldn't see, or, or if you arrange the sand in such a way, we were talking about this the other day, um, if you arrange the scenery in such a way, you can make it look like there's a hill in one direction. In fact, the ground is sloping in the other because it's an optical illusion. Perhaps they're being crafty like that, or they just had marbles that were a different mass or weight to your marbles, and therefore uh, the, the behaviour of them appeared to be quite different. Right, let's go to Dale in Foy's. Hi there, Dale. How's it? Uh, I just have a question. I'm a vapor and a vape shop owner. And the two main ingredients in e-liquid is propylene glycerol and vegetable glycerin. When we heat it, is there any, any chemical change to those two ingredients? Radio, it's a very poor line. I couldn't really catch it. Did you catch the, the mm, ingredients? Dale, can you go through that again? You're talking about glycerin. Is, is that what I... <clears throat> yeah, I'm talking about vegetable glycerin. Ve I can't hear that. Veg vegetable glycerin, the main... Yes. And, and it's vegetable glycerin and propylene glycerol. Okay, the last part I don't hear, but as the main no, components of e-cigarettes. Yeah, of, of e-liquids. Is there any chemical change to those ingredients when we heat the liquid? Okay, I'll tell you what. Shall we ask him to write, to send us an email, uh, uh, yes, Chris, please. and then let's see if we can answer that next week. Or if not, my producers can uh, can take that down and then we can... Uh, I only heard vegetable glycerin and not anything else. So, Chris, what makes you think I forgot about your birthday? Of course I didn't forget. That's why I'm about to sing for you. Have a lovely day, Chris. Many happy Thank returns. I'm touched. You nearly, Cheers, you nearly uh, shared a birthday with Thomas. It was Thomas's birthday two days ago, and he didn't buy anyone cake. Or he bought cake when there was no one at we the office. He did buy cake, but then he just ate it all. <laughs> no, he bought it at a time when the he office wasn't busy. <laughs> <laughs> happy birthday, Thomas, as well. <laughs> Cheers, Chris. Chat to you next week. See you soon. Bye-bye, everyone. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. 
the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.